0: Today we have invited Iqbal Abdullah, who bootstrapped his company Zogzo. Zogzo had a revenue of 150 million Japanese yen in 2020. In September of 2021, Iqbal sold the 67% stake in Zogzo for 233 million Japanese yen. In this episode, we find out how Iqbal grew his company Zogzo, what are the challenges with B2B sales in Japan, what were his reasons for selling the majority stake in Zogzo. And finally, what advice does he has for us to build our own successful business in Japan?
1: Hello everyone, this is the Tech Culture Podcast, where we have conversations with startup founders in Japan running successful businesses. We uncover the strategies and the insights from the founders that people who want to build their own successful business here in Japan so people like us can use. I'm your host, Kostab.
0: And I'm your host, Prashant. So, Iqbal, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, folks. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm surprised that um, I got the invitation at all, actually, because I don't expect to be on this. Um, I'm not a face where you, you see everywhere, but
0: I'm happy to be here again. And hopefully...
2: Whatever we discuss and we talk about today will be of beneficial to anyone who's uh, listening in.
0: Before we start, I wanted to ask, how do you pronounce the name of your company? Like, it's XOXZO, so how do you pronounce it? ZOKZO. 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 So you can just replace the X
2: with Z and then K in the ZOKZO.
0: Oh, okay. ZOKZO. Uh, that
2: is actually the most common question. When I meet someone, potential client or someone just on the street, the the thing was that I, I was hoping that when people start to ask these kind of questions, uh, they will remember us better. Because this is one company which I do not know how to pronounce, right? So they will, they will remember that better. <laughs> so it's a marketing ploy, right? Uh, Which is something which I thought after the whole thing, actually. (laughs) So I didn't think about it when when registering the company name. But then after a while, I said, okay, maybe this might be a good thing. People start to ask all the time. (laughs) The background story is that originally before Zoxo, the company's name was Marimo. I decided on, on Marimo in 2007, at the time when I was writing in the application to register the company. It's it's not a vegetable. It's an algae, right? So it's a marimo algae, which uh, is very famous in Hokkaido. During one of our trips to Hokkaido, I put it on my desk, and then uh, I realized that marimo is is a is a small algae. It's actually a living thing. Uh, it doesn't grow very fast, but it's living. It grows. So I was thinking something of like the company can be like a, like a marimo small but give something back and also close and it's also a play of words between the malay language and also the english language mari means come, and more means more like motto ne. so it was marimo but after a few years i decided to make it sort of like more international it was marimo.cojp and we needed a dot com for that and as you know the usual words for dot com is already taken so i i think i wrote the script and then it came up um, and i told the script that i need to use an x in there That has to be less than five letters and then it came out with also and that's what we decided upon uh without thinking much actually well not not we decided upon well I, I was the one who decided on it and the rest of the team were actually against it they said it doesn't make sense it doesn't i don't know how to pronounce it i said well let's just go with it i don't really quick (laughs) help you pronounce it (laughs) turns out to be uh, a very pertinent question comes up all the time after that so that's that's the background story about it and then after that i keep on telling people okay it's a marketing ploy people keep asking about how it's pronounced so hopefully people will remember this is the one company which i don't know how to pronounce and then turns out that x is represents the cross section of stuff, which is telecommunications, uh, between two people or multiple parties that we do, and I didn't know this at the time. But people sign off on their emails or letters with XOXO, which means uh, kisses, right? Yes, hugs and kisses. Yeah, hugs and kisses, right? Hugs and kisses, and that's also something which we tell people. Oh, this is actually represents hugs and kisses. But uh, to be frank, you know, none of that was thought about when we created the name, when I, mean, I registered the name.
0: This is a really great icebreaker. Whenever you want to approach someone and start a conversation, you already have one topic in your pocket. So you can just give your business card, say, I'm founder of shadow and the, that's the first questions they'll ask, right? It's quite good. Yeah, you
2: should try it sometime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you change the name of your company from Marimo to Zogzo, so... One important reason you had in your mind was making your company more international. Was there any other reasons to change your name? Like did something else in the background in your company also change when you renamed your company? That was the main reason, but then all other things came
2: together after that. So first we get the .com and then we made it more. Uh, we had our English site and then we tried to, to talk to people from outside of Japan. Uh, but at that point, I think 1999, percent of our customers were Japanese companies in Japan and they have only interest in the Japanese market. Following that though, that opened up stuff like, okay, who should we hire next? For example, the people that we want to join with the team and that opened up possibilities to, you know, now it makes sense to actually talk to other people outside of of Japan. I think at that time, well, that's, that's not really true because from 2007, the company itself has been on remote. Uh, we've been working remotely since 2007 even before the advent of uh, all these co-working spaces that you see right now which i'm also in currently doing the podcast with you today the reason why we were remote at the time was more of a practical rather than of an ideological point of view my thinking at the time was that we only do software so there's no real reason why we should be in a space together and above all else there was only myself at the time so we just rented an office to use the address, register the company, and the rest of us, well, at the time, there was two two of us, uh, the founders, when we started Maribor. And none of us needed to be in an office anyway. And then uh, we just started doing stuff remotely. After two years, the other founder, he left uh, to go back to the United States for the reason because uh, we couldn't pay him anymore. He was doing things for free, basically for two years. And he said, hey, dude, I need to get on with my career. There's other stuff that I want to do. So I bought over his, his stake in the company. And since 2009, uh, it was all myself. And our current CTO, Kamal, joined us in 2010. So he's, he's still with us. And there was just a two offers for the next five years. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just remote. There wasn't Slack, obviously, at that time. So we were using Skype chat to communicate. Yes, and emails, of course, and emails. And then the rest of us came on board after that. Most of them were still, I think, Malaysians because of my strong connections to the developer community over there. But after we came into ZogZo.com, then uh, we started hiring people from Russia, UFA, from Philippines, from uh, South Korea. And also from Calcutta, India. So I, I try not to use country names, but mostly city names when I want to refer to where we are all from. Changing the name also changed how I think the rest of us looked at where we want to be going forward. And that opened up the mindset of um, internalization, I guess.
1: As you mentioned, from Marimor, you diverted. Your attention to like an international audience, right now, Zooko has like a lot of use cases, like two FA customer notifications, managing traffic at distribution centers. So, what was the initial use case or the problem that you were trying to solve, and like how has that evolved since two thousand seven to now?
2: In two thousand seven, when I released the uh, the first product for marimoi it was called Maritex, and Maritex was actually something which I wanted to have because I had this problem of sending SMS to my family and friends overseas. In two thousand seven, um, I'm not sure whether you can believe this or not. The Japanese mobile carriers do not have SMS service. Well, they do, uh, but you know SMS service here means you just put in the your phone number right to uh, the, the the recipient that you want to send to. It. Then you send, then they receive that. Just like you will. You know, think it will work in in India or or Malaysia, but they didn't have that. They they only have SMS if you were on the same carrier. Like, you can only send to the same, to a number, which is also if you are a Docomo, then only send to Docomo. Obviously, just from the number, you wouldn't know whether someone is on, on the same carrier as you. So, SMS didn't take off because it's not usable. What they had, in fact, was actually email addresses. So everyone who signs up to a carrier, uh, when you have an account with a carrier, uh, you get an email address. So it would be like at DoCoMo NJP, or NEJP or EasyWeb.NEJP or SoftBank. Or oh, I think they had Vodafone at the time. SoftBank wasn't there yet. So it was Vodafone. Of all these four major carriers, only two had the ability to send SMS overseas. So it was SoftBank, it was DoCoMo. And bank charges you 100 yen per message to send overseas. Docomo charges you 50 yen per message to send to a, an overseas number. And you, you can imagine 100 yen a pop to just say, good morning. How are you? That's already 200 yen. I'm fine. Thanks. That's 300 yen. Right. So to me, it doesn't make sense because, you know, I had friends, I had, I had families uh, overseas, uh, not only in Malaysia, in you know, all uh, all over Southeast Asia, in the US even. So I need a much more economical and a way easier way to actually communicate with them. We don't, we didn't have WhatsApp or what else, we line. So the first product was Maritex, which tries to translate the email address to an SMS and vice versa and also receives SMS. So that was... The first product it was a uh, consumer to consumer. i guess people could just log in put in their uh, mobile number purchase points uh, using paypal uh, it was paypal at the time i can't imagine how i i lived with paypal <laughs> for for paper processing uh, but uh, yeah and the server itself was in my kitchen It was fun time. So there was all these small little pieces that I need to figure out. It's not something that you just put on AWS and then run. Then you can put everything there, change your instances and we didn't have all that. So that was the start of it. And then actually it was only, uh, something which was supposed to solve my problem. But when, when I told some friends about it, they say, Hey, let, let me use that. I also want to, to use your service. And then I just started to realize, okay, it might, this might be something, you know, people want. So why not? And that's when I put all the PayPal and you know, allow you to register and stuff. So that started. And then after a few years, people start using it, people that I don't know. And then after a few more years, then companies started to come to me and ask, do you have an API for this? Because we want to, you know, contact our customers, which we only have their phone numbers, and then I realized, okay, maybe that's something that is usable. So that's when EZsms.b started. And then that continued on from c to c people trying to communicate with their friends and families, and then turns out to an API for customers who want to send out marketing. And then at that time, we did not have authentication. I mean, use cases as authentication wasn't there, but then Twilio came up in the US. And then I think one of the biggest use cases for Twilio at the time was authentication. That's when authentication also took off. It's communications anyway, and at the bottom of it is just text right and maybe a a phone call Uh, we don't do a lot of phone calls though mostly it's sms it's just text and it can be anything Uh, it can be a system some of our customers use that as a method of tracking action taken by customers right they they send and then they put a link there and then you you click on it okay then you know that this customer is reacting towards a particular sale for example those kind of things so uh, it has evolved in in many ways as you mentioned
1: One of the interesting things I saw on Xoxo's website was one of the values is continuous improvement, like Keizuko Kaizen. You've been running Xoxo for 14 years now. So how do you keep innovating in such a long term with a small group?
2: In terms of product development, as as I mentioned just now, it's mostly driven by customer requests and what they tell us. And then what we think they want to do based on the actions that they're taking. So that's how we progress in terms of product development. Those are our main ingredients in terms of K-Suka Kaizen for product development. I don't particularly follow the updates from competitors. I believe they have their own path and their own customers that they're looking at. I totally do it on a daily basis, maybe what, once a year. I go through the news on what other competitors are doing and but it's not my main point of validation. So validation is usually when a customer tells us, okay, this is this is what we want. The biggest part in the case of Kaizen, though, is actually not tech, or even not the product itself. Uh, it's actually on actually how you manage uh, the business and within how we take care of each other as human beings. So that change in many times in the years. In the end, the company is 100% owned by me and I am responsible for everything that happens within it. Everything that we do in the end comes down to how I look at things and how my worldview on how things should be for us. And that worldview comes from all the multiple inputs that I get from the things that happen around the world, from how our team is reacting to something, the personality of the people in it. So the case of Kaizen within that is actually adapting to all these new things that comes in, uh, see what makes sense for us, see what makes us happy, what makes our customers happy. Like for example, remote working is actually difficult. It is not for everyone. Some personality doesn't accept remote working very well. We've had some cases of that, that they think that they can. But after a while, turns out that if I'm not with, I do not get the energy of the people around me. Then it's something which I know is a work that I cannot do. We try to make it easier for people, for example, to allow them to, you know, to give them some allowance to go to co working spaces, for example. We also improve the way we communicate. Firstly, first it was using Skype and only email, but now uh, we have all this Slack, but Slack is still not enough. We tried all these other tools to move towards a more asynchronous communication. That allows us to keep track of the reasons why we decide on something, which is always, you know, you always lose track of that. And then months down the line, you can't remember, okay, why did actually decide about that? So the improvements, you know, to keep track of this, the tools that we use, the processes that we use, that also fits with the temperament of the team, personality of them, those are The hardest part in the of Kaizen, which is still going on today, of course, because things keep on changing. Um, As you know, there's three things in life which is utmost certain. Taxes, death, and change, right? So
0: these things will happen. The continuous improvement cycle is mostly dependent on your customers, as you said. And your customers primarily are other companies because your business is mostly B2B now. What kind of sales channels do you use to acquire new customers or new businesses? And like, do you find any uniqueness in B two B sales here in Japan?
2: Okay, on, on the first question on the on the channels, it's uh, mostly with our mouth
0: incoming,
2: I guess. On on the internet, we put a lot of contents out there. First, the reason is to share our thoughts. And my belief is that it's all of, all of us is remote, right? So you don't get to see our customers. This is perhaps important in Japan, but I don't think it's really unique. Building relationships is important. Although we are in tech, we still deal with humans in the end. Humans are the ones who actually use you know, whatever products we are rolling out. And humans have their idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I think important is is the trust that we need to make. You know, when we want to work with someone, can this person deliver? Can I trust this person to help me uh, improve my business? So we put our thoughts out there and also our faces on the website as much as possible, so that people know that who we are, even though they do not have the opportunity to actually meet us in person. I think that has helped us in getting people to come to the site. When they search for something because of the contents that we have out there, that is one of the main channels. In fact, it's actually the only channels. We don't have any other significant channels. We did run some ads previously, but we stopped doing that. The second one is a word of mouth from our current customers. Uh, They introduce us to a different customer, and then that goes on and on and on. So I myself, although after a few years, I realized that my biggest role is uh, sales when development of the product is done by the engineering team so then i'm the only one who actually am doing sales but i did not go to a lot of like sales places or so that's not really one of uh, you know going out meeting people to actively going out sale through sales that's not what i did a lot we don't have that mostly it's through introductions and then when we have one then i will go and meet people so you, you could say in way, that's one of our weak points as a B2B business. And perhaps this will lead us to the conversation on the acquisition that happened this year for Sokso. So what things do is just specific to Japan, right? As I mentioned just now, it's uh, the relationship. I think, well, to be honest, I don't know how to do sales in other places other than Japan because 99% of our customers are in, is in Japan. They are Japanese. So that's the only thing that I know. I don't really know how they do it at other parts. I've only listened to anecdotes and, you know, people talking in conversation. Maybe if I can give a few, the sales process, if it's B2B, it's slow because you need to go through many levels. I've heard that, for example, in the United States, people move fast. I'm not really sure why or how, but in Japan, they take it slower. I have a customer which has been with us for eight years and they've given us You know, millions of revenue over the amount of time that they've been with us, they're still with us. But it took, I remember from the first meeting that we had, it took them one and a half years to actually sign up and start. So, which is actually, I think, pretty common. There was also one of our suppliers, which I really needed to get into contact. Now they are our suppliers, but I do not have connection to them. So, we paid around so that's around $10,000, I guess, Yakuman uh, to actually get us introduced to one of our suppliers through mutual connections. And that took around two years to actually get talking and uh, connect to the supplier and create a product based on that connection. In return, after the, we released that, I think we had millions of sales too based on that from all the years since we've released that particular product. So, return of investment is is okay, but the point is that it takes time. So, I believe maybe this is the very unique thing of doing sales in Japan compared to other places.
0: When you sold the majority stake in Zogzos, you were already working on it for 14 years. What made you finally decide to sell the majority stake? Is it you wanted to work on something else or like the circumstances of your business were right to just pass it on to someone else? Like what was the behind the scenes reasons?
2: ZogZo is 100% owned by me and was built 14 years ago. I can still remember where I put the server in the kitchen when we released the service. The reason for agreeing to the acquisition was 80% 80% personal, 20% business I would say. I-, I wanted to see Zoxo grow, become a bit monotonous in the sense of working on the same industry in the same industry with the same product. Due to the limited bandwidth or my own abilities, I couldn't try new stuff while having enough energy and focus to improve Zogso's core products. Right? So I've come to realize that. This perhaps is where this is the joke. Yeah? This is this is where my limit is. So that's one. I need help. And in order for me to actually make Zoxo grow, that's one. Another one is I just wanted to try to do something new, different than communications. Uh, not on the bare metal of communications itself. That's what Zoxo is. Uh, it's a C pass, so it's it deals with the bare metal of communication, sending, SMS, making phone calls and stuff. So something more. How do you say? Uh, high level. High level, yes. In the in the value chain, because I'm not really interested in like shiny new tech, as they say. Uh, that's not really my interest. Uh. my interest uh, is more on solving problems. The problems that Zuxo can solve right now, because it's uh, it's on the bare metal side, is too huge. It can solve a lot of problems because you just it's an API. You build stuff on it to solve multiple problems. So I'm. I'm more interested on those specific problems which people deal on on the stack. It fits with my mind, and you know I can absorb it uh, in my mind better that way. So that's the other thing. The other big reason was I realized that perhaps this is the natural evolution of you. If if you consider yourself an ascendant entrepreneur, we built Zokzo from scratch. It was nothing. Uh, so now it has value to someone else, and. That's what, I guess, what we entrepreneurs do. We try to find something, build something, create it into value that is valued by someone uh, else. The final part, which I think also is, I think perhaps the the biggest, is uh, overcoming uh, my fear of letting go. I think we human beings, in order for us to grow, we need to do something new and step out of our so-called comfort zones. You try to challenge yourself to something. And then that's how we grow. After 14 years of deciding everything by myself, in the end, the bug stops me, me. I think letting go and allowing people to decide whilst thing, still having a say in it and see how things go well without you having a 100% say on it is is something that I think I have to go through for the next stage, whatever I'm going to do next. And finally, 20% of the businesses, I think, after looking through how the industry that Zoxo is currently involved in I think it will be a good time to have, how should I say, a big brother watching our back.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you were building it from scratch during the early days, you did not accept any VC funding, right? Uh,
2: no, it was 2007 people were not as motivated as they are right now in terms of like funding and, and raising money. I think people were still haunted by the bottom uh, bubble, right? So we, we did try though. So I did go to see two or three angel investors, you know. So wrote down some PDF files and then say, okay, this is our projections. This is what we plan to make. Obviously, they, they rejected us and, and they say uh, it's not... If you have more zeros at the end, it's it's basically just that. At that time, I think I I told my my partner at the time, you know, we spent too much time on meeting all these people. right you know, we should just focus on the product and build something more which the customer wants to
0: use. And that was the end of it. So, when did you first started getting revenue that was enough to sustain your business?
2: I think right around 2009. Up until 2007, with a small amount of revenue, but from the service itself, from the product, but most of it were from the consultation and the software building. I went to help build software for clients. That was the main portion of the revenue. The word wasn't invented yet then, I think, but that's what they call right now bootstrap, right? To to us, it's just another way of getting revenue. Uh, You do whatever you have to do. So after two years, People that I don't know keep on coming and started to use um, and then they kept on using. So I think, okay, uh, this looks good. Uh, maybe I can focus on this sector, and perhaps hire someone else to help me
1: build this into something bigger. So from our conversations so far and like also your blog or the fortunate. blog, you seem like a man of principle. And one of the inspiring things I found about Zoxo was the number of open source grants it does and its involvement in the or the like Python conference company. So when you're running a business, how do you balance philanthropy with the need to make profit as a business?
2: Well, that's no hard and fast rule for us at least. We need to make a profit first before we can do, own, do something else out of it, right At the end of each year, I look at the other accounts and then okay, this is how much profit that we make and uh, this is how much grants I think we can afford to. For me, at least the amount is not the issue. Even if you make a $100 profit, you can make a grant of $10. That That's still okay. I mean, maybe it's a bit too much if it's 10% of profit, depending on the business and depending actually what you want to do going forward. For example, if you want to go for IPO, for example, then you need to have uh, like a certain amount of profit every single year for three or four years before you can be accepted into the Mazas or Tokyo Board, for example, right? So, Obviously, it depends on what you want to do, but the amount is, is not the issue. I believe, though, it's giving back and allowing the engineers, I mean, to actually build stuff using open source to decide what they want to give, how much they want to give to where. It creates a, a sense of we belong to this. It's not someone that we don't know because we don't see their face, and it tends to make us take things for granted, which I think is big problem for businesses and the relationship between them and open source. You, you cannot take things for granted. There are actually real people who actually build real good stuff out there out of their minds and tears and hearts. And then we cannot take that for granted. We need to at least acknowledge that. And then say, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we can't give you a lot. There's no other way of acknowledging it, at least for our part, except for like don- donating. So that's an important point. I'm sorry, I'm not really answering your question. There's not really how to decide how much to give, but that is uh, our, how do you say, principle or, or philosophy or whatever you want to call it.
1: So I also noticed that you are a founding member of the PyCon JP version and like also for Python Conference Malaysia. You're also a contributing member for the PSF, uh, Python Software Foundation. So what makes Python so interesting to you? Now that you had like more of a managerial role, and so so how often did you use it?
2: I still use it. Python. I still program in Python. Mostly now, I don't program things that is pushed to production. So it's it's kind of like just to express my ideas and see if this works or not, proof of concept, if you will. So my background was in C, um, and then I moved to Python in around two thousand and five. I think it was around Python one point five two. That was the first time actually. Use Python mostly for operational purposes to run servers and stuff. I was working in Yahoo at that time. And then the way that we make changes on the website, on the Yahoo website, was very peculiar. So they wanted it to be so fast. So the HTML is actually hard coded into the C code. And if you want to change the HTML page, you need to change the C code, recompile it, and put it as an Apache module. It was crazy. I mean, when you were to compare it to well, how we do stuff right now. But it worked at that time. So that was my background. And then I moved to Python to do the ops. Uh, it was easy to read, definitely, because of the indent rules. And I kind of like the philosophy of Python where they say there's only one way to do it. People write it basically in the same way. So uh, it's easier to understand. And then I wasn't that hooked, though until I went to my first PyCon conference, which was in PyConry back in Singapore. And I met the people who actually are there, and they were open to discussion and showing how they do stuff. I'm also close to the academic community. For example, my wife is a doctorate, and she was doing postdoc and stuff. She went to conferences. And in academia, it is also common to work together, and it fits well with how I see the world should be as compared to when you know businesses they actually try to outdo each other it's a more of a competition instead of uh, the conferences we're doing we're actually sharing and actually you know i don't mind telling you how i actually do this uh, because we want all of us to actually improve so that was the basis of it and then i started to see what we can do to promote this in japan I met with some of the, uh, the people who went to uh back in singapore at that year i think that was two thousand 9 or 2010. Um, I can't remember. And then we decided to start our own PyCon APEC in Japan. And that turned into today and it's actually one of the HRDG the biggest conference for Python in Japan. And I continued with uh, setting up PyCon uh, Malaysia becoming the chair PyCon APEC uh, in 2016 or seventeen. That opened up the path for me to contribute with uh, the PSF. Now I'm I'm part of the trademarks and the diversity committee uh, working group in the PSF. So it's kind of like one thing led to another. And then I see where things people are not looking into, where can help be given more. So I try to do that as much as I can, but I don't put myself too hard into it if it's something which i can't do anymore i think i've not given enough contribution but yeah that's basically it
0: let's come back to the other business that you are running la local lab so since there is k in the name so initially i did not recognize it but <laughs> later i recognized that it's spanish the crazy labs how did you came up with the name like seems like there's some fun story behind it i'm not really sure whether it's fun i'm trying to learn Spanish, so now it's kind of like my boom
2: for myself. So anything that Spanish is sounds cool to me. So so, so so was more of a kind of like serious kind of thing. I I feel that might not be enough fun in there. But the laka lab tends to move away from that and you know uh, let your hair down a bit, have fun. It also tries to realized uh, one of the things which I wanted to do after uh, Zoxo is to try other stuff uh, that I find interesting. It doesn't have to make sense, uh, but we'll just see where it goes.
0: As you already said, you do not believe much in new signing stuff. So what kind of uh, technology or what kind of domain you are interested in experimenting with at the, the local apps? And you know, it doesn't have to be like DeFi or Web3 or something. What makes you interested in that? Is it the problems that you are solving?
2: Yes, the, the problems are the one that interests me. For example, now, local Labs, we have already one product out, which is called uh, GetOTP. It's actually based on one of the strongest use cases that we saw at Zoxo and also customer feedback when they want to do authentication. Uh, we do all the generation and the authentication of uh, the OTPs that were sent and then pass back to you uh, the authenticated end user. But the biggest thing which actually I also wanted to solve because we also have this issue is putting out sort of like a, a warning sign or percentage on whether a particular number, or particular email is fraudulent registration. Uh, it's important for businesses to register valid customers, so their email addresses and also their phone numbers. Um, number one, obviously you don't want people to try to use your service for, for bad stuff. It's important for businesses to get real customers because they will want to send out like all these marketing emails, which affect their revenue in the end. So they want people who are really interested, not just trying to just want to use it once. This is a problem I think a lot of uh, businesses have and GetOTP is trying to solve that. So we have this, I really hate to use this keyword now, but machine learning at the end. Right. So, so we have this, I don't know, I can't find what we can explain it better. It's basically, you, know, you take all this data and then you make comparisons, you take statistics out of it, and then you come to a conclusion. Okay. Right. What is the probability of this? Right. So statistics, I guess. <laughs> so we have that. The technology behind it is not really new or shiny. It's just HTTP. And then it's uh, a lot of databases. Uh, a lot of uh, statistics, you know, you mix and match all these different data points, and then you decide. Okay, uh, you put weights to it. Um, it's it's not that, you know, it's not that shiny or new, but it solves the problem. Um, so I'm I'm pretty happy with that. The other stuff I'm working on right now is uh, on the property market, so real estate. It's it's interesting. I can't think fig- I can't really understand it, how you actually put prices towards uh, particular real estate. So I'm looking at all the public data that they have in Japan. So that's something that it still holds my interest after working on it for a few weeks now. So it looks good. Maybe I want to continue uh, looking at in what kind of value or prob- problems that I can solve on that from my own perspective. Yeah, so those are the things that I'm I'm working on. Nothing new stuff. It's just problems that I find interesting.
1: Actually, coming back again, tying back to the open source part of it, so of the two products that are listed on LALUKA's webpage, one is completely open source. And of the three values that I could find, it says one is being like an open source community. So with LALUKA, are you trying to focus more giving back to the community as compared to Zookso, maybe?
2: Obviously, we will try to give back as more than what we did last year. This is not only on, on a on a monetary basis, it's also participation. The new thing though which we want to also contribute in Lalu Labs is towards the environment. So this is something which we've been putting off for a long time, and we all know what's going to happen. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but in our children's lifetime, definitely. And the change is going to happen. I don't have any specific on how or when yet, but that is something that I'll be talking to to the team other than open source um, python
1: specifically also something with the uh, the environment maybe that is very inspiring to hear actually you believe in uh, and i quote reading as a substitute for traveling so what are the best books that have grow your business skills and like, what are the books that most resonated with you
2: especially it's especially true now uh, since we can't travel so books is a uh, a window for us to actually experience new stuff and learn new things on one hand actually i try not to read uh, books about business it's it's one of the at least personally for me it's a, one of those a time uh, in in my daily schedule that i want to sort of a uh, uh, shut down right just just read something which is not related to to work having said that though there are some which have Uh, made an impact on how I do work, how I look at business, and how I look at money, for example, how do I manage that? The earliest one that I can remember which made an impact was this book called uh, The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley and William Danko. So I think I read this in around 2000. The book was based on uh, research that he did on wealthy people in the US. Of course, uh, things have changed now, but the basic concepts and values, I guess, that he had in that book, I think is true. So that pretty much impacted me on how to actually manage money, which now I could say translate how actually I run the business. We respect it, and then we make sure that it's a tool that is being used in the right way. Another one, which um, concerning like business and entrepreneurship, is uh, Shumatsu Kigyo by uh, this person, person called Koichi Fuji. It's a Japanese book. It's about starting your business. Uh, on during the weekends, Shumatsuki Gyo. um, it's not it's not a book about the business itself, but it's more technical stuff on, you know, it's not a book that tells, you no know, you should do your business uh, because of this and this. No, it's it's more of a technical book on the practical side of it. So how do you do your taxes? Uh, where can you actually find a uh, working space if you run your business during the weekends? Uh, th- those kind of things, more practical uh, ways of doing so that gave me some inspiration on how to start Marimo uh, when it was in 2007, for example, right? more recent one is The Cultural Map by Eric Mayer. I think it's, it's a pretty known book. It resonated with me very well because we had a team of uh, people from around the world. And after reading the book, so I did a internal team presentation and I said, this is what I've learned from Cultural Map. And I asked, the people in the team who are from all these different places in the world. And I said, does this fit with the culture and how you think? And they say, yeah, it makes sense. It was fun. And it was uh, an eye-opener. If you are running a remote team or if your team has a lot of many different people from uh, different parts of the world, different cultures, perhaps the cultural map by Remai will be an interesting read for you. Another one which I enjoyed was a uh, K.A. by Nambasang, Tomoko Namba, the, the founder chairman of TN, DNA at the time. It's kind of like an autobiography, right? So she's went through her history of how she started DNA. So that, that was fun. Yeah. Other stuff which found, I found interesting was uh, Muhammad, his life piece on the earliest resources by this writer called Michael Also a book by Jared Diamond called Upheaval. That was interesting. Was a fun read. Another good one was um by Craig Ferguson. I think the comedian. He is he, his fun. So his book called uh, I've read the book called uh, Between the Bridge and the River. So that was was fun. Uh, there, there are many more others though. But um yeah um read them to have fun. Sometimes um, it gives you ideas because you know books is basically based on someone else's uh, outlook and experience and knowledge mm-hmm. and. It's one of the easiest ways for for us to actually get in-depth sides of of that. So, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, Thank you for sharing your books. I think uh, it's a pretty interesting collection. And yeah, so you have been here for 25 years and you have built your successful business here. So what advice do you have for people like us who want to build their own business in Japan, who want to build a successful business in Japan? I guess the obvious first advice would be learning Japanese. But other than that, what kind of advice do you have for us?
2: A suggestion, perhaps. Not an advice, a suggestion, perhaps. So in, in Japan, specific. Um, I feel that the Japanese uh, system or environment very much helpful towards small companies, right? So they have a lot of tax breaks and also monetary help, giving out loans to small companies. And the infrastructure is... Pretty top-notch uh, if you want to find information. It's not the startup where VCs give you like millions and stuff, or, or like uh, give you like two or three million just for like a few pages of slides. No, it's it's not that kind of environment, but a more mom and pops show. So to put it in perspective, I do not consider Zoxo or even a local apps as a startup. I consider them as small businesses, right? And some people think that all businesses are startup. Um, I do not think so. All startups are businesses, but not all businesses are startups. Uh, because in business, you, you still need to make profit. It's the same. Even if you're a startup, even if you are Grab or Twilio or even uh, Apple, you still need to make a profit because you're a business. Right? So, um, I, and based on that, so because we are small businesses, we look at things from a quote-unquote small business perspective. So it's like loans and what kind of grants can you get? It, it helps a lot, actually. There's a lot of this stuff which you should rep- you should try to use because it helps.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing the story of your life's journey as well as the journey of ZogZo. So if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where should they go on the internet?
2: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Iqbal ABD Iqbal am on Twitter you can just uh, look for Iqbal Abdullah on Local Labs you can also search for there my link to Twitter and everything else is also on, on the site uh, it's also on Soxo so all's welcome uh, if you have questions you want to discuss about stuff or you know you know throw some ideas around one of the things that has helped me a lot are the I'm not a self-made man. Uh, I'm made by the people that have been there along the way with me. So this a lot of people they help me out by just answering questions and spend and then I think the, the biggest thing that they've helped me out is from the time that they've spent to you know actually just answer my questions and you know give their thoughts on stuff. So I would like to give back do the same as what people have done to me and if anyone has any things that they want to discuss like thank you for us you know calling me on this podcast i'm happy to share whatever thoughts i have it might not be much i'm still learning but i'm happy to you know get into a conversation and help someone
0: out yeah thank you so much for coming here
1: that is all for this episode of the tech culture podcast you can find the links to all the topics we talked about in the show notes Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TackleSport. Catch you the next time. Bye.